We're preaching a series on relationships right now because I, I think I look at the landscape of, of our congregation and just the, the world in general, and I, I think that we need biblical wisdom. We need the Lord's guidance in how we think about our relationships. We're not just rebuilding a service in these uh, latter stages of a, of a continuing pandemic, but we're, we're seeking to rebuild our community, rebuild relationships, build love together. So we're preaching on relationship. A couple weeks ago, I preached on friendship. I gave us a biblical theology of friendship. Last week, we began part one, and what we're finishing this morning, part two, of a consideration of marriage. Next week, we're thinking about singleness specifically. In the following weeks, we're going to continue to flesh out what it looks like to have Christ-exalting, healthy relationships at every level. Our main idea last week is that marriage is a covenant relationship that reflects and refers to the gospel. Marriage is a covenant relationship that reflects and refers to the gospel. We spent much of our time focusing on those two words, covenant and gospel. Marriage is a covenant, a relationship built on a promise, not merely a contract between two people that can be broken as soon as terms seem unmet. A husband and wife make a covenant with God and before God with one another. Marriage points to the gospel. This is the great mystery that Paul reveals to the church at Ephesus. A mystery, he says, that has been hidden for the ages. In the Garden of Eden, at the first marriage ceremony, officiated by the Lord God himself, God was embedding into the closest human relationship a picture of the gospel. Marriage teaches us about the gospel, and the gospel teaches us about marriage. In the gospel, we find a shared definition of love. This is love. In the gospel, we find strength, not just to understand intellectually what love is, but we find the strength emotionally and spiritually and physically to love even when we do not feel love. We find strength to love when we are not lovely, when we do not find our spouses particularly lovely. But what is this covenant relationship for? Romantic love? Self-actualization? Happiness? Companionship? Stability? Two incomes? That was, that was nice. Children? What is it for? This morning I want us to see that the scriptures give us a common vision for marriage. They answer for us the question, what is marriage for? That common vision then creates friendship, deep spiritual friendship. And that deep, lasting spiritual friendship in the context of covenant changes us. I'm going to say those few words again because that's the flow of our sermon this morning. The scriptures give us a common vision of marriage, answering the question, what is marriage for? That shared answer creates a common vision. That common vision creates spiritual friendship. And that spiritual friendship over the course of a lifetime changes us. You'll see three things this morning. First, what is marriage for? Marriage is for the kingdom of God. Second, marriage is for spiritual friendship. And third, marriage for transformation. We'll consider marriage for the kingdom of God, marriage for spiritual friendship, and marriage for transformation. With all the caveats and context laid out last week that I took a few minutes on, basically saying this, 
I know all sorts of folks are listening, folks who have positive experiences with marriage, negative experiences with marriage, folks who are not married, folks who do not want to be married, folks who desperately do want to be married, folks who are married, folks who are happily married. I know we run the gamut in the place this morning, and I've thought of each of those situations. Second, I want to make a clear again, I am a young man who's been married for five years. I heard somebody talking about parenting recently. They said, young parents who are like, you know, pastors and teachers in the church, young parents write books about parenting. Old parents write books about prayer. And I, that struck me because it reminded me of how much, just through life experience, that I don't understand fully or don't know. And so I submit my uh, five years of marriage, and I submit to many of you who have been married for much longer, and so as a church, one of the strengths is that it's not all about me, and that we have resources all over the fellowship. So I went ahead and did the caveats I said I wasn't going to do because I can't help myself. But those caveats in place, let's get to work. We're drawing heavily from Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller, because the sermon was written out of the bank of premarital counseling notes that I have that I, that I use for premarital counseling, premarital counseling in our church, and I just think they're profoundly helpful. So there will be some heavier quoting of him than I usually like to do of one individual in a sermon. Let's get to the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read it in its entirety again, verse 515 through 33. Let's sit up in our seats. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage Oh, sorry, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First, we'll consider marriage for the kingdom of God. Let's look specifically in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? We might ask. He grounds this command theologically. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, two groups of people may be tempted to stop here, may be predisposed to just stop reading. The first and perhaps most common group are those who take umbrage with the idea of a wife submitting to her husband. 
It's archaic. They may say, I will hear no more. A second group may be people who really, really like the language in unhealthy ways. They see all of life through lenses of authority and submission of one person answering to another. They may be predisposed to even a domineering sense. They may say, well, wife, submit to your husband, case closed, end of story. That's all I need to know. To both parties, my plea remains the same. Don't stop reading. Because if you stop reading, you miss the glory. If you stop reading, you miss the beauty. If you stop here, you miss running the risk of a truncated theology of marriage. You risk missing the forest through the trees. Let's turn to Paul's next command. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, grounding that theologically for Christ is head of his body, the church. Husbands, love your wives in this way. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Love your wives sacrificially. Let's consider now for just a moment the love of Christ for the church, which the Apostle Paul gives as a sort of model for men thinking about loving their wives. The love of Christ for the church has a telos. That word telos just is like a, a rich word that combines like goal and destination and point and objective. Like the goal of Christ for the church has an aim, it has a direction, it has an end, it has a telos. Christ gives himself up for her, Paul goes on, that he might sanctify her by washing her in the word so that he may present her to himself in perfect splendor without spot or blemish in the kingdom of God. Two theological words help us understand the apostle Paul here, sanctification and glorification. I've learned that when preaching, you should use theological words, but when you do, you should always explain them. So sanctification means being made holy, being made holy. It's both a completely finished process and an in process process. This is what I mean. When Jesus washes us with the word of the gospel, we are completely sanctified, we are completely clean forever and ever. Like, that is the reality uh, in eternity future. I don't like to say that, but that's sort of the idea. But we live into our sanctification day in and day out, right? We're, 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 we're in the process of being made holy. Like the spirit of God in us is sanctifying us. He's making us holy. So sanctification just means for our, all intents and purposes, being made holy. It's both complete and ongoing. Jesus has fully accomplished this for us, but he is making us holy in real time through the everyday stuff of life. Glorification is the end goal of sanctification. Here's what I mean. In, in the resurrection, in the kingdom of God, we will reflect the glory of the risen Christ in risen and glorified bodies ourselves. The grace of God, which has been militant in our lives, fighting our battles with sin for us, will be triumphant in glory. Glory is grace, triumphant. We will live without sin, sickness, or struggle. We will behold Christ in his glory in the resurrection in the kingdom of God. But not only will we behold Christ in his glory, we will reflect Christ in his glory. We will see him and we will be like him. This is coming in the kingdom of God. This is our sure and steady future. And this is true because of the way in which Jesus loved us. He loves us in this way. 
that he might sanctify us by washing us with the word of the gospel, that he might present us to himself in splendor, without spot or blemish, in the kingdom of God. Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives with this goal in mind. Your marital love has a telos. It has a destination. Your marital love has a point. I'll quote from Pastor Tim directly here. Paul gives his readers a vision for marriage that must have completely astonished them. The primary goal of Christian marriage is not social status and stability, as it was in ancient cultures, nor is it primarily romantic and emotional happiness, as it is in our culture today. Paul points husbands to Jesus' sacrificial love towards us, his bride, but Paul does not stop there. He goes on to speak of the goal of that sacrificial love for his bride. It is to sanctify her, to present her to himself in radiant beauty and splendor, to bring her to be perfectly holy and blameless. He wants new creation for us. He wants to remove all spiritual stains, flaws, sins, and blemishes to make us holy, glorious, and blameless. Brothers and sisters, this is the goal of Christian marriage, that you and your spouse would stand before the throne of God, glorious and beautiful. This understanding of marriage for the kingdom of God provides the foundation for deep spiritual friendship between husband and wife. Marriage has a telos. Marriage has an end. Marriage is for the kingdom of God. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, sacrificially love your wife with this goal in mind. That goal creates spiritual friendship. Our second point, marriage is for spiritual friendship. I preached on friendship two weeks ago, and I am I'm building off of that sermon here. That's why I preached it first. So go back, if you haven't, and listen to that sermon for a much more comprehensive understanding of, of friendship. One paradox of friendship, one thing we talked about is, is that friendship isn't really about friendship. Friendship is about something else. It almost always is. Some common interest, some common goal, a common journey makes us friends. Yes, friendship is cultivated with hard work, with grace, with truth, with presence over a long time of being there and showing up and loving each other. Friendship is cultivated, yes. But before friendship is cultivated, friendship is found. It's found with two words, right? You too? You care about that too? You love that too? You're going there too? And I, I want to say for our intents and purposes this morning that this shared understanding of marriage is primarily about our holiness and our journey to the kingdom of God, of marital love having a goal. This understanding provides the basis for deep spiritual friendship within marriage. This provides the basis for deep spiritual friendship within marriage. I believe this can hold us for a lifetime. I believe and I have faith that I will experience as a reality that this sort of marriage can both be meaningful and lasting. This shared vision of marriage for the kingdom binds us together as we pursue the kingdom of God. I believe this is revelatory if you're taking notes. If you build your marriage on sex, it will falter when those dynamics change. If you build your marriage on happiness, it will die when happiness leaves. 
perhaps more common if you build your marriage on kids. It will suffer when your kids grow up. Really, because none of these things, as good as some of them are, none of these things can hold the weight that marriage presses on our lives. Because none of these things provide a destination that points us to God. Sexual partners are going nowhere, really. Business partners are going to the bank. Parenting partners are going to graduations and weddings. But spiritual partners journey to the kingdom of God. Our spouse is our deepest friend with whom we share our most sacred journey. Our spouse is our deepest friend with whom we share our most sacred journey. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, speaking of a spouse, uses a word that we translate in the English standard, companion. But it implies a, a deeper relationship, a, a special confidant, a best friends of sorts. We even see deep friendship between Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, think about it. God did not just bring Adam a lover. More crassly, God did not just bring Adam a reproductive mate. But he brought him a companion. He brought him a friend because it is not good for man to be alone. And I think Paul is going to go on to argue in this text that this friendship must be your highest earthly priority. I think Paul's making that. I would have pushed back on that at some point in my life, but I think Paul's making that case here. Love your wife like Christ loves the church and love your wife, husband, like you love yourself. Look in verse 28. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So we've already introduced one metaphor to help us understand the kind of love that a husband should have for his wife, the kind of love that should mark the marriage relationship. Love your wife how as Christ loves the church by sacrificing himself for her in love that she may be presented holy and blameless to God. Love your wife with that same understanding. And then Paul introduces a second metaphor. Don't just love the church as Christ loves the church, but love the church as you love yourself. Love the church as you love yourself. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. What does it mean to love your wife like you love yourself? Paul explains, like you nourish and cherish your flesh. But Paul, is, is, it's interesting how he's playing with that metaphor because he says, oh yeah, Christ does that too. <laughs> love your wife as you love yourself, meaning you care for yourself. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But Christ also loves us in a way that nourishes us and cherishes us. What does it mean to love your wife like you love yourself? Well, you nourish and cherish your flesh. We might not use that language, but you hold an intrinsic priority in your life. And I think that is a good thing. Actually, I know that it's a good thing because to love your neighbor as yourself, the great commandment, implies that you love yourself. It implies that you love yourself not with a selfish, prideful love, but that you love yourself with a love that dignifies your own worth as a human being. I think sometimes our theology can overcorrect and we cannot acknowledge key, key points like that. That intrinsic priority you hold in your own life, the healthy kind, the, the kind of priority that causes you to breathe. The kind of priority that will cause you to go and eat lunch. The kind of priority that will cause you to go to a doctor. The kind of priority that will cause you to bathe. The kind of priority that will cause you to clothe yourself. That's the kind of priority that you should hold 
towards your spouse. Sacrifice for your wife that she may stand before God holy and blamelessly. Sacrifice for your wife that you may nourish and cherish her as your deepest friend. And wives, respect and submit to your husband as they sacrificially love you that you may sanctify him and prepare him to stand before the Lord God holy and blameless. I got to quote Keller here one more time. I, I will do it one or two more times. But Paul is saying that one of the main purposes of marriage is to make us holy without stain or wrinkle or other blemish. What does that mean? It means to have Jesus' character reproduced in us, outlined as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, humility, and self-control. When Jesus' love, wisdom, and greatness are formed in us, each with our own unique gifts and callings, we become our true selves, the persons we were created to be. Every page in the Bible cries that the journey to this horizon is not accomplished alone. We must face it and share it with brothers and sisters, with friends broadly. And some who marry will face that journey with their spouse. In marriage, friends, we journey with our best friend, the throne of God, and our best friend shapes us for the destination. Our third and final point, marriage is for transformation. Marriage is for transformation. Marriage is for the kingdom of God. All these ordered relationships have a goal. We're reminded of that where the apostle says, submitting all of us to Christ. So we're all submitting to Christ. We're submitting in these ordered ways with this goal of being presented to God, holy and blameless in glory. This common destination, this shared understanding of what's happening in marriage creates a friendship that is deeper than social status, than a, like a project, than, than parenting, than comfort, than habit. It creates something deeper, more abiding, more lasting than all these things. And as we're journeying together in this spiritual friendship, we're changing and we're being changed. Being a covenant in which two people become one, marriage is a unique spiritual friendship. One that's very proximity fills it with peril, promise, and power. One that's very proximity, the very, very nearness of it fills it with peril, promise, and power. The perils of marriage are many. You know the stories. Allowing someone into your life that deeply is inherently risky. In fact, not to be Johnny Raincloud, no one will wrong you over the course of your life more than your spouse. Think about that. Like over the course of a lifetime, you will most likely, I mean, there's exceptions to all of these statements, but most likely you will have to forgive your spouse more than you have to forgive anyone else. And your spouse will have to forgive you more than anyone else has to forgive you. No one will see your flaws more clearly than your spouse because your flaws are minor inconveniences to people you see for an hour. But your flaws are majorly, majorly problematic in the life of the one you never leave. Your flaws will not impact anyone as much as your spouse. And here is a great peril of marriage, that the one your flaws most impact is the one your heart most loves. 
Your flaws may inconvenience other people, but they'll really affect your spouse. You may be tempted to see those flaws in your spouse and begin to think, you know, I could actually, I could do better than this. You might begin to think, you might begin to think, he hasn't worked out in years. He has no ambition, man. He's just selfish. What if I married so-and-so? I wonder what that person is up to since they graduated from high school. You may begin to think of someone different, someone better. But here, I think, is one of the most unique parts of Christian marriage. If what we've said is true, that marriage is for the kingdom of God and it's for us being shaped into the image of God, if marriage is for deep spiritual friendship, that in those moments where you see your, 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 flaw, your, your spouse's flaws and you might be tempted to imagine someone better, you can imagine that someone better being your spouse. You can imagine that someone better being your spouse. What if I told you that that someone better for which your heart longs is the future glory self of the person you're married to? And what if I told you that God has placed you in their life to help make that person come to life, that that person is in there and that person, because of the love of Jesus Christ, will stand before the throne of God spotless and blameless when Michelangelo was asked how he carved the magnificent David. His reply is reputed to have been, I looked inside the marble and I just took away the bits that weren't David. I looked inside the marble and I, I just took away the bits that weren't David. This, brother and sister, this is paradigm shifting. If marriage is for sanctification as we journey towards glorification, then the rough edges of your spouse do not need to be opportunities for fighting. They can be, should be, and were designed by God to be opportunities for sanctification. Those rough edges that you encounter with your spouse that could be, should be for the average person an opportunity to fight is an opportunity not to bring the hammer of law but the scalpel of love. This is an opportunity not for anger and bitterness as the world would respond but an opportunity to respond with grace and love because believe it or not you have rough edges. Marriage does not simply bring us face to face with another person's problems. Marriage brings us face to face with our own problems. But marriage, Christian marriage, also brings us face to face with the person God has given us as instruments of his grace. And this is the power of marriage. It is a power of truth and a power of love. Marriage is a mirror that shows us who we are, if we like it or not. But marriage also fills us with love to do something about it. Marriage shows us who we are and it helps us grow into who we are becoming. A healthy marriage is filled with grace and truth. Not a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth, but 100% grace and 100% truth. Brother, sister, when marriage is hard, do not be surprised. Our scriptures do not give us a light, romanticized vision of marriage. In fact, our scriptures lead us to expect hard seasons. And when they come, 
know that this is not a distraction from your marriage. This is the mission of your marriage. This is your time to shine. This is your time to love sacrificially. This is your time to serve without expecting anything in return. This is your time to fulfill the vows you made on your wedding day. Worship team, you guys can come on up. And when you love your spouse in this way, when you love your spouse like Jesus, the way your spouse thinks of themselves begins to change. That proximity provides us with an opportunity to, to sort of rewire the other person's self-image. Like we can overcome years of, of, of other people telling you you're a loser, you're, you're ugly, you're a, you're, you're a waste of flesh, you're this, you're a failure, you're a disappointment. You can overcome all of that when the person who loves you most comes into your mind with a different record, a different rehearsal. This is not just positive self-talk. Because this is the person who God has placed in your life to help you see the love of Jesus. So this person isn't just filling you with their love, but they're ideally filling you with the love of Christ. That's helping you reprogram the way you think about yourself and the way you think about all of life. Now comes into your life someone who can overturn the accumulated verdicts that have been passed on you by others. And your spouse can point you to Jesus unlike anyone else. Because your spouse, to be precise, is not the ultimate cause of positive transformation. Transformation happens in marriage and outside of marriage. We'll talk about that next week. One of the great temptations, if you were single and heard this message and say, wow, I'm going to have to get married to be transformed. No, it's not the case. And that's why we're taking a whole week next week to think about these dynamics for our single brothers and sisters. Marriage, though, shows us, often in difficult ways, who we are. But that person who loves us can help us become the person Jesus is making us. Marriage changes us. It's supposed to, because marriage shapes us into who we're becoming. Marriage points us to Jesus. Marriage reminds us what is real, and what's real about me, when Holly sees my flaws that are many, is not just trying to muster up love for who this flawed, sinful person is, but the love that she would have for me would be grounded not just who I am right now, but who I ultimately am in Christ. Because she's agreeing with God in how she thinks about me. She's choosing to love me when I'm unlovely. She's choosing to be patient with me when I'm impatient. She's choosing to show grace when I'm graceless. And all this is vice versa. I'm just using a metaphor. And on that road, in that journey, we're cultivating a love that is true. Our final quote from TK, which will end our sermon. Within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. If you're interested in falling in love, pay attention. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and that excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you're taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses on earth, but now look at you. 
Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. This is the mission of marriage, that we may know Christ and make him known. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would reach your hand into our hearts and, and, and create in them a spiritual imagination that can handle a robustly Christian vision of marriage. That we would understand marriage as being a part of this process or a covenant that you've given us where within this covenant we are, are committing ourselves to true love sacrificing and submitting in the ways you ordain so that we may be formed into the image of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be shaped in us so that you can work in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control. I pray that in the school of marriage, you would shape us into the men and women you have called us to be. That if all the folks here who are listening to this sermon in person and online are going back and watching it, that, that they, in the midst of a difficult marriage, would, would rest in the fact that they are where you've placed them. That they would rest in the knowledge that you are using every ounce of that pain. You are using every ounce of that struggle to create in us something that would be created no other way. To form in us a beauty that is lasting. A goodness that will stand. And a grace that will flower into glory. I pray that our marriages would be reflective of the gospel in this way. That our marriages would be a light to our city. I pray that our marriages would be healthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.